0: Right and early um, thank you so much, all of you for being here It is my enormous pleasure and delight to be able to be the person who can introduce you today to somebody who you may not know but should and who you will love as much as I do Well that's not possible you can't love her <laughs> as much as I do she's my very best friend in the entire world. Um, Raya Elias, the author of Harley Loco) And I can. Uh, who's struggling with her lanyard?
1: I think they take you want some it to help me? buddy. They definitely want me. They to want know. to claim
0: you. Yes. They they, they stapled it, it, it to her. She's going to have to wear that all day. Um, Ray is the author of a, a memoir called Harley Loco, um, a memoir of
1: give give us the subtitle of Hard so Living, cool. Hair, and Post Punk from the Middle East to the Lower East Side. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sprawling story, um, and we met.
0: 15 years ago because uh, of an intervention. Um, now, Rhea is a recovered drug addict, and a lot of her work is about recovery. The intervention at which we met, however, was not a drug intervention. It was a hair intervention for me that my, <laughs> friends, that my friends had where they were like, we love you, we care about you. We can't look at this anymore. Um, something has to be done. And they sent me to Rhea, who at the time was living in the East Village in a walk-up apartment with her two pit bulls and her super hot wife, like newly newly married to like this gorgeous little pixie blonde um, with her tattoos and her guitars and her motorcycles. And I was like, well, you are now the coolest person I've ever met in my entire life. And we became friends. And actually, just um, as a disclosure, we were meant today in order to honor that first meeting. We thought it would be a really cool piece of guerrilla theater if Rhea gave me a haircut on stage. We thought of this like six months ago, and we pitched it to the Sydney Opera House and to the All About Women Festival, and they were nice enough to let us do it until last week when Ray and I realized that was the stupidest idea we had ever had in our entire lives and that the mechanics of it were just ridiculous and that it would involve 15 minutes of a blow dryer going on stage. Um, so what do you so think about wait, that, Liz? Yeah, what do you think about like transformation you create? What? Like just be, t- so she did my hair before, so you can look at it now. It's nice. There's um, it. Done. It's done. And... Um, and I, you're all going to buy Raya's book after this, so I um, told her not to read from it today. What I asked her to do instead as an introduction a bit to her life, which has been really an extraordinary life. This is somebody who has lived and died um, in several different chapters and several different versions in really fascinating ways. And, you know, there's an old, there's the adage that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And my experience is that that is not always the case with people. Sometimes what doesn't kill them just fucks them up so much <laughs> that, that they're, um, sorry, warning, adult language will be used in this session. Um, lots of it. Uh, you're Australians. I have a feeling you can cope with it. Um, like, Oftentimes you see people whose, while their lives haven't killed them, they haven't necessarily made them stronger. And this is something we're going to be talking about today is the alchemy of how you do that, how you take how you make peace from the pieces, basically. Um, And Rhea does that and has done that better than anybody I have ever known. Um, She's the greatest teacher of my life and my dearest friend. And in order to give you just a sense of her voice and her life, I asked her to read an essay that she wrote this year um, that she delivered in New York City at Joe's Pub Do you guys know Marieke um, Hardy, who is on ABC Book Club? And So Marieke does this thing called Women of Letters, um, where she invites people. She does these nights, these sort of theatrical nights, where people from different backgrounds come and they write a letter to something. And the assignment was to write a letter to your stumbling block. Um, And uh, here's what Rhea wrote. And I have a feeling that although... None of us probably have lived lives, although I don't know, some of you may have, exactly like hers, we can all identify with the spirit of this, and you will uh,
1: know her better when she's done, so. Bring bring it. So, letter to my stumbling block. Dear Head, (laughs) (laughs) you used to be the worst neighborhood for me to hang out in, especially when I was alone. Being there with you was scarier than walking down Avenue D in the 1980s by myself. It was scarier than being stalked by a serial killer or cornered by a rapist. Being in you on my own head meant that I would do anything to convince myself that I was a fucking reject, not worth the skin that I existed in. Let me first start by saying that I never feel like I belong. No matter where I am, I'm always plagued by the notion that everyone in the room has earned their seat except for me. They're smarter, more educated, well-read, better musicians, actors, directors, writers, et cetera, everybody. Some of the places I felt most comfortable in were jails, psych wards, rehabs, detoxes, or being homeless on a park bench. Those are places that I knew I'd earned the right to be in. And even then, there was always someone more fucked up, tougher, or even more homeless. (laughs) I'm going to start by reminding you, Head, with a story. When I was living on a bench on Tompkins Square Park in the 1980s, I was lost. I'd found comfort and a twisted sort of safety in the hardcore drug scene of New York City. And I alienated myself from my good friends and family. I'd basically given up on myself and given into a lifestyle that I would wish on no one. And you, Head, helped convince me that these things were true. My sister wanted to reach in and pluck me from this world that was so foreign to her. She was sophisticated, a woman who had married a doctor, had three kids, and lived in the beautiful suburb of Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. When she came to New York and found me in that park, the dreaded tent city, with all the hustlers, drug addicts, and criminals, she offered to take me to the San Maritz Hotel to help clean me up and, to stay, and, and discuss my state of living. I agreed uh, to go with her, but on one condition, that she give me money to buy enough drugs beforehand. She agreed, knowing it was the only way to get me there. I hadn't washed in weeks, was wearing filthy clothes, and had deep track marks on my hands and arms. I had scabs stuck to the fiber, of my shirt sleeves, I hadn't eaten in days because all the money I hustled on the street was used to buy heroin and cocaine. She gave me the cash and I ran to the neighborhood bodega, copped the drugs and met her at Leshko's, a little tiny diner on the corner of Avenue A for a coffee so I could use their filthy bathroom and do a shot of speedball before getting getting into the cab to go uptown. There was no way I was walking into that pristine hotel without numbing you out, head. Because I knew what I looked like, how embarrassed and ashamed that she would be. But she'd do it anyway, she'd walk in with me. For me, she would do it. I needed a fix because you had told me to be proud, cop an attitude, hold you high, and give everyone else a what the fuck are you looking at sneer. And I believed you. Do you know how fucked up that is? As I waited in the room angrily, my beautiful sister ran a bath for me. And when I took my shirt off, the fabric peeled off my skin, and blood ran down my arms. She cried. I sunk into the bath, wishing it would melt away all the pain and suffering. But nothing at that point could do that but another fix. So she stood by with the door half closed as I did another shot. Then quietly she gave me beautiful clothes to wear, her clothes, and fed me room service, steak and oysters, my favorites. We talked about my life and she said and did everything a person could do to offer help. Finally she fell asleep and after sitting in the dark for a while I changed back into my old skanky clothes, folded her things and kept and crept out of the room." You told me that I was too fucked up and didn't deserve what she was offering, that I would feel way more comfortable on that park bench downtown with nothing, because after all, as you said before, I'd worked really hard to get there. When I treated myself badly, you were quiet, and when, and when you were loud and unbearable, I treated myself even worse. I would have done anything to power down that bogue voice of mine, yours, yours. I'm, remembering, I'm reminding you of the story, Head, because I've come a long way since that park bench. I've managed to quiet you down by inviting people into you and divulging all of your secrets and exposing them. I stopped using hardcore drugs to shut you up, and yet you still whispered. I even tried those pesky antidepressants for a while to keep you muffled, but after quite some time, I realized that you weren't going anywhere. You're mine and I own you. Yes, I said it, I own you. Not the other way around. Not like a piece of jewelry or a car I can sell or an old piece of musical equipment I can trade. Not even like a family member I can stay away from for long periods of time. You're like the weight that I carried around all those years and hated until it made me so miserable that I made a decision to have a healthy relationship with it. So during the last 17 years, while working on all these fucked up relationships with myself. I wrote and directed a couple of films and received wonderful accolades. I also made some amazing music with great producers. I wrote a memoir called Harley Loco and continuously write essays for different publications. I sell real estate in New York City and have a wonderful, healthy, and loving relationship with a gorgeous Swedish woman who's a pilot, a captain on Swiss... A captain on Swiss air, just to be clear, super hot, right? (laughs) And we travel the world together. I have friends and family that love me and would do just about anything for me, and I back for them. So I'd say my life has turned out really, really bomb, right? So I ask you, head, why is it when I'm asked to do an event like this one, at first I'm really excited and flattered, then the fear sets in? and your dark voice starts to creep in like it did years ago, beating me up with the questions, do I deserve to be here? Am I at a level that I can hold my own on a stage with people that I admire? I don't know, I don't know about you, and I don't know if anybody else feels this way, but this shit happens to me all the time. I'm going to remind you of another story, head, and this just happened a couple weeks ago. I was invited to a small dinner party for a dear friend of mine who happens to be the book review guy for the New York Times. His wife, also a literary genius. There were 11 people at the table, all academics. Yale this and fucking Princeton that. (laughs) Boston Globe this and film review that. I think you remember the the crowd, right, head? (laughs) While at dinner, you reared your ugly face and started chattering to me. While they were eating foie gras and making references to literary things that I didn't understand, you told me that I was the stupidest one at the table. You told me not to speak because I had nothing to add to the conversation. And if I did ask for explanations, they'd know how stupid I was. So I shut my mouth. My friend even asked if I was okay, and of course, and I smiled and said, yeah, the foie gras was incredible. She didn't seem convinced because I was so quiet, but then when that one really smart guy from Yale started talking about identifying triggers before you do a reading, I understood that. The rest of the table didn't know what he was talking about. I saw my chance and jumped in with my trigger story. I told him that when I did my first reading at Pianos and read the first and very, very harrowing pages of my book, the room was so quiet and then a great applause happened. This chick came up to me after and said that I should have announced a trigger warning before reading my piece because someone in the audience could have been sexually assaulted or abused, and this was now a new etiquette. Instantly, I replied, honey, but actually I said, bitch. (laughs) I'm the one that went through that incident, not you. If you don't want to be triggered, then don't come to a bar on the Lower East Side of New York City to listen to authors... Cutting edge stories, talk about their lives. She balked a bit, but then she got the message that she wasn't gonna make me feel bad about what I just shared about myself. The smart Yale dude jumped up and he gave me a huge high five and the conversation opened up about many things which I was very comfortable talking about. Labels, feminism, art, sexuality, race, creativity, all the above. The rest of the evening was a wonderful experience because I showed you, head, that when I'm invited somewhere, then I probably belong there. People don't invite me for the things that I lack. They invite me for the things that I bring. Maybe this is the way we all balance each other out. So dearest head, thank you for hanging in there with me, sometimes taking a beating from me and vice versa, and becoming a little more tolerant and rational these days. I always expect a challenge from you, and now, I'm certainly up for it. Remember, dude, I fucking own you. <laughs> Love, Rhea. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Uh, yay. Um, Rhea. <laughs> That's Rhea. Um, I want to start by talking about shame because uh, <laughs> a subject that we talk about a lot and that you know a lot about and then this is about as well. And, and I'm curious, especially in an audience that's predominantly women, and thank you to the men who came as well. You're very loved. We appreciate you being here too. Um, and you're no strangers to shame, I know. Um, and, and I, wanna, I just want to begin with that word um, and ask you to sort of talk about what that has meant to you in the past um, where you think it came from in your life, and how, like, how you've worked with it um, at, at, at this point? Um, okay, you've
1: never asked me that one before. No, I thought I'd just—you uh... kind of suck, dude. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, shame is inherent in my culture. Shame is inherent. You know, I was born in Syria, and uh, and I think that it's so. It's so subtle shame is so subtle you know guilt we all know guilt but shame is just worked into the fiber of who i am you know and it is the one thing that you know i never knew that i needed to shake but you know it comes from a look when you're 2 it comes from a word when you're 6 it comes from your sister being gorgeous and thin and you being sort of the fat little tomboy um, and the way when you're walking through Sears to look for jeans, it comes from the the lady, the, the 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 lady who's helping you, who says you need to go to the boys' husky section because you can't fit into a, a little girl's size jean. It comes from you know, and I'm just taking you through. It comes from feeling different, feeling like oh my God, I'm not. You know, I'm never going to be attracted to a doctor, a man. Uh, this I want to. I want to be the man. I want to be. You know, I want to be self sufficient. I want to take care of people. I. So in my family and in my culture and in every culture, and I'm not. I'm not pointing it out as a Syrian. In every culture, I think it's so hard to not have shame. Mm-hmm. You know, because we identify. I mean, so hard to identify with the positive things until you work through all that stuff and get to a place where you're like, fuck this, I'm not gonna let you take me down. Mm -hmm. Because that's the one thing that will take me down. All of us and we've been you and I have been talking about this a
0: lot over the last couple of weeks because I've gotten really excited about the work of this neurobiologist. I've been telling you about this guy, Mario Martinez, who has this take on shame that I'd never heard before that I felt was like so clarifying about how it's the greatest tool that your family or your culture has to keep you in line, mm. right? Um, because a, a family and a culture are very conservative a church is conservative, a family is conservative, whatever tribe you belong to mm-hmm. is by Even nature- Even drug addicts are conservative. You've been shamed by, you know, like, and the way they, and sometimes the shame's very explicit, like, if you don't toe the line, you're excommunicated, um, you're disowned from this family. Like, sometimes it's really violent, mm-hmm. Some will kill you, you mm-hmm. know, like honor killings and stuff. Like And then sometimes it's subtle, where it's like, we won't kill you, but here's the language we're going to use. Oh, now that you're a fancy person who got an education, you think you're better than us. Now that you're, you know, blah, 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 you think that you're, you know... And they sort of work you to try to bring you back in. Into the fold. And the way that we try to come back into the fold is through failure, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you dare to leave and do well... Um, that's the biggest betrayal that you could mm-hmm. possibly have of your tribe, right? Your tribe is like, you have to follow these rules or you won't do well. And then if you don't follow those rules and you go do well, you've really fucked them, <laughs> you know? It and challenges everything. They try to, you know, and so I'm, I'm, I was thinking about, tell that story about when, because I think this is a very important thing to remember if you are daring to move outside of what you were taught, that, that they, your family, your tribe, your culture, your church, whoever it is who builds the sort of rules around you, They'll always take you back in failure, but they won't take you back in success, right? So if you come back in success, they're going to sort of work on you. But if you come back as a failure, weak and broken, they're like, come back. We have all the love for you because... And and you tell that story about when you got clean and your brother
1: was like... Your brother, who you've always had such a hard time with, was like finally there for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we had never really gotten along. And then... Uh, you know, I spent years just out there drift, And um, and finally, I went home, you know, defeated and just, you know, wanting to get help. And it was like, come on back in. We, I went to a rehab, a six-month, everything. And I got on my feet. And then when I wanted to move back to New York, because I hadn't, I hadn't slay, you know, slayed the beast yet. I had to go back to proved to myself that I could, no matter what, drugs, not whatever, still stand on my own. And when I wanted to leave, he literally, he threatened to disown me. He used my mother's cancer at the time to sort of shame me, um, you know, that I was leaving. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, like, how could this be possible? I'm I'm healthy, like why can't you be happy that I'm healthy and want to sort of move on and still chase my dreams and now that I have dreams again? But it wasn't that way, it was like, oh, you're back and you're here and we wanna hold on to you and that's it. The,
0: one of the things that this guy that you and I have been talking about a lot lately says is that the only, there's like a, an energy field that you have to use to combat shame um, and, and the one that he suggests is honor. Um, because it's the it's the opposite really Um, and and that when you have been shamed you know um, whether through your own behavior or through somebody betraying you or abandoning you or hurting you or kicking you out When you're carrying around shame, you have to build up a sense of your own honor. Mm. Um, And that has to be different from perhaps the honor code that you came from. Mm. Um, And you have to find your own honor in the world. And you have to build a list of evidence for yourself of the times where you have been honorable and the ways that you are honorable. You have to sort of convince your mind that, no, I'm a person of honor and dignity. And I want to know where your honor comes from, like where your dignity comes from. What do you know in your marrow about yourself that makes you still be here with us yeah, and makes you still be able to tackle the head that you, by your own admission, and we all know from our own, look, we all live in a head that's a terrible neighborhood to walk around alone in at night. Um, what is the honor code that you have?
1: That I mean, that my code, my code is just... Look, when I got clean 17 years ago, I knew that I had hurt so many people. I was 37 years old, and... For 20 years, I was, I just made havoc and destruction everywhere. And so my code was to be, to, was truth. It was no matter what, to live or die by the sword of truth. And I have found that some people. Can't handle it. Some people, you know, and when I first came around to it, I was like, truth, you know, (laughs) fucking truth, man. (laughs) You know, and I think that that's, you know, that's the thing that happens when you're sort of trying to attack something that you really know nothing about, right? Is that you go to the opposite side of the pendulum and you become, it becomes your dogma, right? Mm -hmm. And then what happens is that you start swinging and you start thinking oh my god this thing truth is is really a kind thing it's an honorable thing it's it's the thing that i want most in my life it's the thing that i want people to portray to me you know i want to be forgiven i want to forgive everyone i you know i want to forgive myself which is i think the most important thing so it first started with that like Rhea, you've been just an asshole. You've been so fucked up. Can you forgive yourself for A through Z? And it was like, yes, I think. A couple things took a while. <laughs> you know, but and and they still, you know, and they recur, and they mm-hmm. recur on a, a a lower level. At first they're really extreme, and you think, I can't deal with this, I'll never be able to live with this. But every time they come around, they're like on a lighter level. And now You know, I just, I live and die by truth, but kindness with truth. Not a truth that's going to knock people out. Not a truth where I'm going to assault you by telling you the truth about yourself. Because I can't do that. Only you can tell you the truth about yourself. Mm -hmm. I can tell you the truth about myself, you know. And it's pretty raunchy, some of it. (laughs) You know, And, and yet... You know, when I expose myself, like I was saying, in that when I expose myself, I rip myself open. There's nothing in there but love, right? There's nothing left because all the crap is out. And who are we really? We're this like point of light and love. And if I can show you that, if I can show you all my shit and like open it up and you can see that I work really hard to take step by step by step by step to do the next right thing, you know? And if it feels wrong in my gut, then it's fucking wrong. Then take a turn, dude. Don't do it. If it feels wrong, take a turn.
0: You have taught me more about truth than anyone. Um, because I I remember I took an ethics class um, in college, and I remember the professor who had this great Brooklyn accent. He was this ex-Marine. He was genius, and he talked like a cab driver in a (laughs) 1940s movie. Like, he had the greatest, and he, I remember him saying, we become liars because he goes, your family and society, they demand the truth, but they can't deal with it, (laughs) you know? Um, And it's totally true. Like, it's such a great thing. Like, you're, you're, told constantly, to be honest, but the fact is most people actually would really prefer that you weren't, you know? Um, Because it's, they'd really prefer that just tamp that, whatever that thing is. And so, especially if you're a sensitive empath, you spend, like if you're me, you spend your life when people ask you what you think about something your first thing is to lean in and look very closely at their face and try to figure out what is the answer they want you to <laughs> say, right? Um, that's something I've spent my entire, I'm like, what do you want? I used to work in a, in a cafe and there was um, a bunch of Honduran guys who made the coffee and I remember this one guy who spoke no English and I would go up to pick up the order to bring to customers and I would say, Hilario, is this decaf that I ordered? And he would look in my eyes for the answer. <laughs> do you want it to, be Yes. <laughs> No, no, it is like what do you want? Yes, no, and that's what I spent my life doing. Like, what do you, what will be the thing I can say to make this moment right now as smooth as possible? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, which leads to just an escalation and snowballing of terrible consequences, right? Mm-hmm. It makes that moment smooth, yeah. and then it makes your life a living hell, you know? um, And then you eventually, like, and the things that you've taught me, the specific thing I love is when you always say, the truth will always eventually come out. So the quicker we can get to it, the better. Like, let's just go right to it, rather than delaying something that will emerge because, What's your line? The truth? Truth
1: has legs. It always stands. It always stands.
0: Everything else will fall away, and in the end, you'll have to reckon with it anyway. Yeah. You know, so whenever I'm going through like an a interpersonal difficulty, you're, and I call you for advice, and, and I sometimes wonder, why do I still pick up the phone? I know what she's going to say. <laughs> she's going to say, tell the truth, right? Whatever the thing is, tell the truth. Say it as gently as you can but send that email to that person and just tell the truth and i'm always like I can't.
1: You know, and i um, hate it when she like rewinds it on me and she's like baby you know you know you got to tell the truth cuz that's what you do and i'm like oh, <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's yeah. And it and it and it seems to work. Or or
0: like and and the other line that I love of yours is always that you you know my husband and I this has changed our whole life this line. We were praising you for this last night. Keep your own side of the street clean. You know, um so that means owning yourself, being accountable for your actions, apologizing when you need to, and making sure that you're tidy on your so that you've done your work and then whatever happens on the other side of the street It's none of your business. none of your business. Um, You know, and so my husband and I do this all the time. Is our side of the street clean on this? You know, if we're in a, like, did we do everything we can do? Then the rest of it, let it go. Um, You're not in charge of how people react to that. Mm. Um, I want to ask you to talk about being a late bloomer creatively, which you both are and aren't. Um, There's a level at which you've been creating your entire life. There's a level at which that I see you now in your 50s coming into this blossoming of creativity that um, you're embracing in, in such a different way than you ever have. And I and I want to bring this up because I as somebody who is a creativity um, uh, process proselytizer. I'm constantly trying to get people to make things and to release the things that are in them. I know that there's a level at which a lot of people, especially women, seem to feel like if they haven't done it yet, it's too late. Um, if they weren't trained up in it, it's too late. If they blah, 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 it's too late. Um, so could you just take that away from them? Yeah. The way you yeah, do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> are
1: you dead? <laughs> Create. No. Um <laughs> you 're not fucking dead you 've got breath in you, and then you can do stuff um, i you know i used to I used to really really, really hate myself for being a creative person. I used to beat myself up for being a creative person because I used to feel like it was it was a, a nagging thing that just that that haunted me like why do I have to, why can't I be the architect that my father wanted me to be? Why do I have to have this yearning, yearning, yearning to be a creative person? So, but I'm not enough. You know, that was my my head back in the day. I'm not enough. I'm never going to be enough. I'm fucked up. Now get out there and create and do what you, you know, be tough and create and, you know, Just be a soldier, and that was the epitome of what was in my head all the time. And since I've been clean, it took a while because I never thought that I could create. I thought all of that stuff came from the angst. That was my life, that was the depression, that was the drugs, that was the darkness. And I love that it just happened. Darkness. And um, <laughs> You're in the zone, uh, man. You're no, calling no, down and the spirits. So, you know, so when I when I started when I wrote my, you know, when I started thinking about doing music again, like I hadn't picked up an instrument in years, and I I was, uh, you know, just ashamed. I didn't think I could do it. So I would literally like skulk around writing lyrics and trying to play the piano and, and doing things and not allowing people to hear me. And I had this little four track and I wrote the song and I thought it was shit, right? And I recorded it on a cassette thing and, you know, and, and then my friend, Barb Morrison, heard it and she was a producer. She produced Debbie Harry and like Rufus Wainwright and she heard it and she was like, dude, you got to come into the studio and record this. And I'm like, What? But what I've learned, you know, and a lot of it, I, I'm going to just say, has to do with Liz as well. Because I was so ashamed of being a creative person. I felt like I was a closet creative person. You know, i had been a closet queer for so long. Just <laughs> I had to be in the closet about something, right? <laughs> so, but she would say, I can't believe it. You do, you talk about doing these things and you do them. And I was like, Yeah. But she just brought this light into... Like, when I met Liz, I was like, oh, my God, this person has all this light. And I was sort of crawling my way out of the darkness. And she talked about creativity in this positive way of like, oh, my God, you're so blessed to be creative. You're so... It's so inspiring to see somebody that talks about things and actually does them. And I was like, yeah, (laughs) I can do that, you know? And it sort of helped me to get a backbone about my creative thing, and then it helped me to start appreciating it. So now, you know, my mantra is, I am enough. Now go out there and do it, and it doesn't have to be, like she always says, it doesn't have to be perfect, it just has to get done, you know? And, and you know, I know I'm like a shitty everything, I'm a jack of all trades, I'm a master at none, and who cares who is the master of anything, right? And do you I mean, want to hang out with that person? Definitely not. <laughs> Who is the master know? at anything? <laughs> so I just, you know, the only thing I need to master is this, my heart. You know, that's the only thing I need to master because this rules everything. You know, I hope eventually it will rule this. But at this point, this does rule, like, everything that I do. And if I have enough, you know, love for my creativity, for a person, for whatever it is, then I want it. I want it in me, and then I want it out of me. And if I can't, you know, this is the last thing I'm going to say, like, if I can't keep it in anymore, if it fucking drives me crazy, like an earworm, or, you know, if I have lyrics in my head, or a hum, or a hymn, I got to get it out, because it will drive me crazy. I know myself, And keeping it in is not a good thing. What do you say about the border collie? Oh, I I always say that owning a creative mind, which is basically a human mind,
0: um, is a little bit like having a border collie for a pet. You got to give it something to do or it's going to find a job to do. And you will not like the job it finds. You know? Um, You know, so that's why we make things so that we can keep this business occupied. Yeah. Or else it's going to eat the couch. Yeah. You know? Yeah. and try, start hurting the mailman, like you know. <laughs> and, and you know, you and I are very much aligned in this idea that if you're not creating something, you're probably destroying something. Um, usually yourself or the people around or you. Or the people around you, you know. Yeah. Um, and that there's a way to be creative without destroying yourself or the people around you. Um, and that is usually, I think, to let go of the outcome, which you did beautifully with Harley Loco. Mm. Um, and you know, she wrote this thing. I, you know, I was like, write this book. She's like. All right. She's like, How? I'm like, Sit down and you write it. <laughs> it's the only way a book ever got
1: written. Um, and oh, she's so vanilla about telling that story. <laughs> She basically <laughs> dared me to write this book. And I was like, I'm not a writer. Uh. Anyway, And go you ahead, did so. it, right? And you, and, and, and I was like, just tell the truth. Just tell
0: this you know how to tell a story. Tell, pretend you're talking to me. Tell me what happened. That's what a book is. That's what a story is. It's what any work of art is. It's a thing of like, oh, this is how I saw the thing that happened, or this is how I dreamed. Just do that. And um And when you were done with it, and it was terrific, and, you know, an agent loved it immediately. And a major publishing house loved it immediately. And it happened really fast. Of course, it didn't happen fast. It was 50 years in the brewing and three three years years in the making. And then it was overnight, you know, um, where suddenly they were like, oh my god, we love this. I remember your panic where you said, I never thought anybody would actually publish this. I have to go back and take a lot of stuff out of that book now. So I was wondering if you could speak to that feeling and what happened, like what you ended up (laughs) doing.
1: Oh, man. Because you wrote it without thinking about the outcome, which is how you should make art. I mean, I remember three years uh, of just sitting there with my two pit bulls in the the (laughs) church house that she, you know, made made me go to, which I'm still there. And, and just thinking, okay, this is going to be my cathartic experience. This is, I'm going to get it all out. I'm going to be as honest as possible. I'm going to, you know, and then when they read it, you know, I did, it's funny because I scaled a little bit back on some lesbian sex, I remember. And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I want to be pigeonholed as, you know, whatever. And, my, and I gave it to them and they were like, can we get a little more lesbian sex? <laughs> And a little more about the music scene. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I need to take a couple things out, you know, a couple of experiences out. And they were like, oh, no, we don't want anything out. And I just remember I was terrified. I was terrified. My family. My, You know, thank God, I mean, I loved my parents, but thank God they were both gone, because like, (laughs) there was no way my father could have read the first 10 pages of that book, and like, he would have died, you know, on the spot, and um, so, you know, it's just, and I had to let go of it, you know, I had to just bite the bullet and just let it go, and just be like, okay, you have to be... Strong, you have to be brave, and you just have to let go of the outcome because this is your truth. I mean, it's not a lie. You you just you put it out all out there, not expecting everybody to read it, but you know what? It's uh you know, I, I did put it away and you know, and I remember sitting that having that conversation with you, because I was like crying and not talking to anybody, you know, just and she was like are you okay? Like, this should be a really happy moment. And I was like, I'm fucking terrified. You use the word, I was like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. And she goes, you're terrified. And I said, I'm fucking terrified. <laughs> it's like, you know, and she just said like, look, it's, it's just, just terror. It'll pass. It's a feeling, you know? It'll pass. It's just terror,
0: and it's actually a really appropriate way to feel. Um, and, and creativity always stirs up terror, because creativity asks you to enter into realms of uncertain outcome, and fear hates that more than anything. And the fear response in you will always be like, don't do it! And the creativity... That's always a thing that you just have to expect. And I was like, "Oh, oh, baby, you're just terrified." Yeah, that just means you made something.
1: You know, um, it's okay. We all are. She makes it sound so easy. It, it is. That's what I love. I mean, you know, it's and you like- do
0: too. I mean, this is the thing that you know. A lovely friendship is based on mutual need, and the mutual need that you and I continually have with each other is that we're brave in different ways. Nobody's nobody is uniformly. One hundred percent brave in every aspect of their life. If they are, they're—I don't know—they're either very, very, very they're enlightened super being, fucked up. or they. <laughs> They haven't done any work um, at all on themselves. And, you know, there's been different, chap- like, sort of aspects of ourselves that we've worked on really well to the point that we kind of do have a kind of mastery. And I'm really sort I'm very brave about creativity and I'm very comfortable with it. And it's really easy for me to communicate that to you. And it's really easy for me to see what you can't see, which is that, oh, it's just terror, you're fine. You know, um, you've got to keep doing it, What's the, why stop? And it's really easy for you when I'm sitting at my laptop shaking over an email that I have to write someone that's so scary because I'm telling them an emotional truth. And Ray is on the other line saying, push send, honey, just push send. And I'm like, but they'll have a response. (laughs) She's like, they're allowed to have a response, you know. And this is what we do for each other. And sort of you need to make sure that the people that you bring closest to you in your life are those people who help you to ascend to the highest possible potential of yourself, mm. um, and I think it's just a wonderful state to be in in middle age, where you attract that, you mm. know, um, where you're not attracting people who are foul weather friends, mm-hmm. um, who only are there for you when when things are when when things are bad <laughs> and when you're suffering and don't want to see you rise, you know. Mm. Um, and, and I was wondering too if you could just speak for a moment about how you lost your fear of abundance. Um, how you lost your fear of happiness, how you lost your fear of contentment and peace and learned to trust in those things and
1: believe in those things. Well, I mean, the fear of abundance was absolutely the hardest and easiest thing that I've ever done. And that's because I lost everything many, 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 times over. And so I... You know, I know myself and I know that if I can stand and I have a pair of scissors in my hand, right, I can make money whether it's on a park bench, in a trailer fuck, fucking park in Albuquerque or like anywhere. Like I know I can get on my feet. So abundance just natural and, and having no fear of it, it just naturally comes to me. Um, The abundance of which, I I was just thinking about
0: um, the thing that I see you not doing, which is something that I see a lot of people doing. When things go well, you don't get scared. Mm. Um, And there's, you know, you and I have seen this in people where the minute things start to go well... (sighs) Oh, that's so boring. <laughs> they get it's terrified. And I wonder what it is that you have about that, that, that you're willing to be like, cool, I'll take it, thanks. Well,
1: I mean, um, the thing is, is like when things go well, that's amazing, right? But I mean, tomorrow, things may not go so well, right? And it's just, it's a part, of, it's the natural rhythm of life to have these ups and downs. and And my favorite thing is like, that that middle that middle ground right that like nice even wave that you can take a paddleboard on and just sit right <laughs> and just check it out all across all the horizons and it's so amazing because happiness is totally overrated because when you're just like happy <laughs> then you know <laughs> then you're like sad and it's kind of like <laughs> it's the same thing it's the same thing you know and that's what you know, that's what kills me. And I've been, I've been dead and I've been alive. And it's just, they're both overrated, you know? <laughs> I'll take alive a little more. But, um, <laughs> you know, but I mean, riding the balance is so incredible, you know? And that's sort of what I've learned through life is like everything, like don't make a big deal out of anything. If it's, you know, this right here, right now is the pinnacle of everything I've ever experienced in my life has brought me to the fucking Sydney Opera House? <laughs> me? <Yeah. laughs> you know, and I, we were walking up here and I said, Liz, this is, this, is, this is it. You know, this is like, and this is the absolute best experience I could have ever asked for in my life for today. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, you know, and it doesn't matter because if I end up on a park bench for whatever reason, I know I've got feet, I've got a half a brain and, uh, and I will endure and I will, you know, I'm a really positive person. And not so. just on a park bench. We were, I have to
0: tell my favorite story about you. My favourite Australian story about you. Last year, Ray and I were here. We were in Adelaide, and we went to this um, nature park where you could walk around with the lovely animals. Um, And there were all these lovely wallabies, and we had food for them and stuff. And it was, like, really a Disney experience, you know, like... Little birds flying and pouterous on the ground or whatever puteroos. they're called, and um and and we're sort of like one with nature and it's like beautiful sunshine and she's got a sort of corona of joy and light around her and I'm watching her enjoying this and she's feeding all the wallabies and she's um, this one big ass male wallaby dude comes up to her and he grabs her Prada purse <laughs> and um <laughs> and she gives him a little bit but she's got all these other and he goes like this and I've never seen because I didn't know Raya back in the day when she lived on the streets. <laughs> I've never seen the, I didn't know you in jail at Rikers Island. I didn't know like when, you know, you wore, kicked people's asses on their, so anyway, this, this, this dude, this, uh, this, this wallaby. Big wallaby. Big. He comes up and he, and he reaches for a bag again and she turns around and this face I've never seen on you before, and she goes, fuck off, motherfucker! <laughs> and And the wallaby's like, Whoa! Like literally, puts his little hands up like this, and he's like, he was like, we're cool, we're cool, and he
2: took off. It
1: was, uh, and then she said, Oh my god, I've never seen that side. I was like, I was like, get the fuck out of here, motherfucker! And he got, and he and she goes. Oh my God, I I've never seen that side of you, and I was like,
2: well, "What? What side?" <laughs> and she was like, "Oh my God, I've never seen that street side of you." And, and I was, I was like, like,
0: "Between the enormous beating, passionate heart that you carry, and that badass, don't you will always be fine." <laughs> um, Anywhere in the world. So, well, we've got a minute, and what I want to do is ask Rhea to sing for us. Um, Raya uh, is many things, and one of the things she is is a fantastic musician. Um, lots of record deals back in the 80s. Um, uh, just is fabulous, and she's going to sing a very special song. Okay. I was going to sing too, but you know I only know the words to one song. <laughs> the Game of, the oh, Game of Thrones.
2: Oh, oh,
1: oh, oh,
0: she's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've been okay. tormenting everybody lately. So I,
1: because it's International Women's Day and uh, because Liz Gilbert wrote this amazing book called The Signature of All Things, um, I wrote a song about Alma Whitaker and because she is a heroine to all of us, pardon the pun, um, <laughs> and uh, I fell in love with this character and... You will, too, uh, if you haven't read it. And uh, Before you
0: go, can uh, I make a special request? Yeah. Um, can you sanctify this space before you begin? I've only ever heard you do this once, and I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to do it again. Raya was raised in Syria. English was her fourth language. Um, her first was a combination, well, Arabic, and then her grandmother's language of Aramaic. And oh God, once... I
1: you're fucking doing that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Will you sing us can't say no. To either. make it holy and because we're in the opera house, a few lines of the Lord's prayer in Aramaic as taught to you by
1: your grandmother in Syria. I'm not religious, but this is such a beautiful hymn. I'll sing just
2: one verse. <sighs> That's it. <laughs> wow. Thanks,
1: Liz. Thank you. That felt really good. Yeah, it felt good for us too. Okay, so this song is called Touch the Ground. And like I said, it's about Alma.
2: She came out of the sea, striding. She came out of the sea, like she was born from it. And in the dark garden, in the quiet city night, Hey Come.
1: Liz and Alma.
2: Thank and you. Andrea, I love you.
1: Woo. Thank you so much.
0: Well. <laughs> Take your bow. Give me that. I won't drop it. <laughs> Take your bow. Ray Elias, everybody. Take your bow to Sydney Apple House. <laughs>